0: Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories, available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr.
1: We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is author Lana Shea. Lana is the author of Erotic Hustle, Redefining Sin Through Sacred Sexuality and Psychedelics. Lana Shea is on an altruistic mission to bring light to the dark underworld of the sex industry. Easy money lured Lana into a decade of stripping, webcamming, sensual massage, and moonlining as a dominatrix. Erotic Hustle invites readers into a world of the therapeutic uses of psychedelics and the tantric approach to conscious sexual exchange. Lana Shea is a Madison, Wisconsin-born nomadic citizen of the world based in Los Angeles exotic dancer, tantrica, transformational coach, yoga instructor, sensual foodist, medicine woman, psychedelic psychotherapy, and cognitive liberty advocate on a mission to inspire the birth of conscious strip clubs around the globe. She's also the co-founder of Ethneo Ventures and the Sensual Collective. You can learn more about Lana at lanashay.com. Lana, welcome. Thank you. Wow. Well, just reading through that introduction, I uh, I have a lot of questions about a lot of the things that you're doing, just to find out what they are, <laughs> <laughs> but to start out, just want to thank you for the opportunity to publish the book, Erotic Hustle. I know it's out under Arbor Boat and Books imprint, and uh, maybe you give Yeah,
2: for sure. The book is my memoir... Um, but it's very much focused on my time in the sex industry, specifically as an exotic dancer. So a lot of people hear sex industry and they hear escort or someone who actually has an exchange of, um, the physical act of sex for money, which is not what I was doing. Um, everybody knows what a stripper is. So if that makes it easier, <laughs> um, but also as you read dominatrix webcam model, um, a lot of different uh, branches in that industry.
1: Yeah, so, okay. These different, these different things, are these all like different services that you could do to make a living?
2: Yeah, I guess you could put it that way. Uh, a webcam model is just someone who sits behind a screen and entertains or interacts, performs um, in a myriad of ways. Um, and then some of them are paid very well for doing that
1: <laughs> <laughs> right so i'm guessing with the webcamming maybe during covid that became more of a thing than than being in a club in person
2: oh for sure I'm i feel like a lot of people may have heard of OnlyFans, which is a site that everybody jumped on felt like during covid you just can share photos and videos and whatnot and people can subscribe pay monthly or paper video photo
1: i see and uh, I mean, just how, how did that how did that uh, transition happen during COVID? Would were you able to keep up? And would did it keep up financially? It sounds like it was very innovative and entrepreneurial at that time.
2: Yeah, uh, I myself was in uh, Costa Rica when uh, the border closed in Costa Rica. A lot of my friends from the U.S. said, "Okay, we're going to go." Because the border is closing, we're going to get stuck here. And I said, no, 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 I'm staying here. Um, And stayed in in that country and had to figure out how to make it work. You know, not working in strip clubs anymore, obviously. Um, So it transitioned online, OnlyFans and a bunch of other different sites, like a lot of people.
1: So I'm going to take you back to the time when you got started into this. I know the book goes over a lot of this. But if you could just sort of give us, uh, without giving too much away, about the book, maybe the early days and and how all this began.
2: Yeah, Uh, when I first stepped into this industry, I was in my very early 20s and I was in Wisconsin, where I'm from, where I was born. And I had just returned from uh, a few months in France, And when I arrived back, I thought to myself, "Okay, I have to get back to France or out of this country as fast as possible, because that's what I need to do. Um, And a girlfriend said, "Okay, well, the, the fastest, easiest way that I know to make a bunch of money is dancing. And that's what I'm doing right now, stripping. So, you know, try this out with me. So Um, just like a a lot of girls, like getting into it for money. There wasn't any crazy story behind that.
1: (laughs) So your reason to getting back to France, uh, what were you doing over there?
2: Language immersion. I had spent five years in college learning French and it was just time to do the real immersion in the country where the language is spoken so that I could really fluently speak it.
1: Yeah, I guess... um, what were your goals back then when you were spending all that time learning French? It sounded like you wanted to move to France, become a French citizen, marry a Frenchman. I don't know what what were you thinking.
2: <laughs> I did actually all of that. Um, I don't know. I had some obsession with France for so long. Um, this was before twenty three and me existed, and then I did a test and found out that I'm French mostly. <laughs> so all this time thinking I was mostly Sicilian. Um so maybe that explains it. Maybe <laughs> I knew my heritage.
1: So do you like French um, do you like French fries? <laughs> just kidding.
2: <laughs> I love French everything.
1: That's very interesting. Yeah, so you're you were talking about how a friend said, hey, you can make some money at this. Um, but I would also imagine that it there's a lot more to it than hey, just the lure of money. You have to have the courage or the the belief that you could you could be successful at it. I, if you could just share with us the maybe that formative time when you, you're first knowing this, it, did you have a lot of doubts or were you pretty confident this was going to work?
2: A great question. Um, I am very comfortable performing, entertaining on stage. Uh, I was first on a stage when I was, I think, as young as four years old, four or five years old, my mother had me in dance—you know, the typical tap, ballet, or <laughs> excuse me, tap, ballet, jazz, uh, point—all the the classical dance forms. And um, my family owned a dance school at that time, so I ended up doing solo performances on stage a lot, and then beauty pageants and things like this followed. So it was just very comfortable on stage Um, and for some reason I always created a stage wherever I was from a very young age so I would remember my family sitting around for a holiday or something and I would find a way to get in front of all of them and sing or dance or it was just natural for me so (laughs) I always knew that being on a stage even if it was stripping or what have you would be comfortable so that part was easy I think that part's The the scary part for a lot of people walking into that industry or gentlemen's club, you know, being on stage. Uh, some of the clubs where I work, girls will pay so they don't have to they'll pay the club so they don't have to go on stage, but that's not for me.
1: Hmm. That's very interesting. We're talking to Lana Shea and we'll be right back.
0: Explore Sunbury Press books and find the work of talented authors in many genres. Ars Metaphysica is our spiritual, new age, and metaphysical fiction imprint. Among our titles, works by Kareem el such as The Kabbalistic Visions and Phoenician Code, Chris Fenwick's The 100th Human, and Michelle Willard Hoffer's The ABCs of Narcissism, Soaring Past Toxic Partners. Find these and other intriguing works at the Ars Metaphysica tab and all works of nonfiction and fiction at sunburypress.com.
1: I'm back with Lana Shea, the author of Erotic Hustle. Lana, uh, you were talking about the clubs and and uh, some of the girls paying not to have to go out and dance. Um, I can only imagine what what kind of experiences you might have in clubs. Uh, the guys probably behave in very different ways. Did you often did you often find that the men were mostly respectful, or did you have? Um, some pretty crazy experiences there.
2: Well, of course, I've had crazy experiences. <laughs> That's the book. Um, <laughs> however, I will say that as time moves on and um, the more time I had spent in gentlemen's Clubs, the more I was able to calibrate myself and align with the clientele that I wanted to interface with and i would say in that sense they were respectful and they they were people that i did want to interact with and engage with uh genuinely and uh i also as i was saying earlier i'm comfortable on stages the other part of this equation that made it possible was that i am genuinely curious about people um all people Mm -hmm. so i have no trouble uh building rapport and really getting into an interesting dialogue with anyone that I meet in a club. So uh, I think that if I show them respect, they show me respect most often. And I am able to filter. I was able to filter, you know, towards the end and go, okay, this person is not someone I want to approach. They're, you know, very intoxicated, belligerent. (laughs)
1: Right, right. Yeah, and I can imagine if you're in the better places, the higher-end places, hopefully it's not as... You know, not as challenging. (laughs) So shall we say? I'm trying to find the right words. (laughs) Uh, So I kind of wanted to move on to some of the other things that are in your background. Uh, I know when I read the the intro to introduce you, uh, we mentioned a bunch of other things that you're doing or have done. What is a tantrika?
2: Great question. Uh, Tantrika is someone who practices or lives the a tantric lifestyle someone who's versed in the tantric arts and for me honestly i just believe it's a holistic mindful approach to life and mostly mindful of energy and the way that we're giving and receiving energy and the way that we um, interact with other people our relationship with other people having a conscious energetic exchange and um, when people hear the word tantra, they often think of, you know, tantric sex. And it doesn't always have to be sexual, just, you know, meaning someone is shaking their hand can be tantric. It's the way that you are approaching your physical interactions, uh, sexual and non sexual
1: So what is the philosophical basis of that? Where does that come out of? Is that some Eastern philosophy or something out of India or is it more recent?
2: Yeah, correct. Just like we have yoga from you know the East, India, and Ayurveda. Ayurveda is the uh, five thousand year old science of life. They Mm -hmm. call it. It's just um, once again a holistic way of living and nourishing the body and interacting with the earth. Um, Tantra is in that same vein, where they apply that same consciousness to um, human interaction.
1: Yeah, it it seems like um you're taking the energy that you have and the the talents that you have and you're you're focusing it now and and being more um I don't know what what the word is. Uh, I'll I'll search for that. while I continue to ask you about <laughs> so tantrica, transformational coach, yoga instructor, sensual foodist. Um I get the yoga instructor, a transformational coach um when I see transformation, you're helping people move from something to something. So what are you transforming when you're coaching?
2: Yeah. Where that title came from was, um, I had a brother who, uh, overdosed mm. on heroin and died. So that drew me to, um, the world of recovery from addiction. So I trained as a recovery coach, uh, and that, Unfolded into a transformational coach because there's much more that goes with recovery than just, you know Keeping someone from going back to the substances Yeah, uh, There needs to be an entire transformation uh, Of everything in life So that's the root of that.
1: Yeah, very sorry about your brother and you know, we live in a time now where You know fentanyl is mentioned all over the place um, There's like an epidemic of, of this And uh, yeah, it's admirable to be doing work like that. Uh, What is Essential Foodist?
2: Yeah, that was my brand before it moved to the Pure Way, P U R E. Okay. Purity. Um, So I was focused on getting couples in the kitchen together and eating really incredible food mostly getting them to the farmer's market together and things like this and uh, improving their relationship through food and being in the kitchen together so um, and just really tuning into the senses I guess that's mindful eating in so many ways you know really paying attention to the smell of your food and the texture of it and the taste of it instead of just you know mindlessly putting it in the mouth and swallowing and that's the, you know That's what we do when we eat sometimes. But if we slow down and really pay attention to our food, that transcends into the rest of our lives.
1: There is something to that. Instead of going through the Wendy's drive-thru and grabbing a food bag (laughs) and (laughs) eating as fast as you can while you're driving down the road, take some time with your better half. Um, Certainly uh, sitting down in a restaurant, too, can be uh, a great experience as well. But um, it seems like you know all this is all this is tied together into almost an Ayurvedic or that kind of uh, that kind of thinking, a more holistic view of of the world, um, the energy of things, how how it all relates spiritually, and uh, I'm tying this all together in my own mind. So f- forgive me if I'm going down the wrong path, <laughs> but
2: uh, beautiful, actually, yes, correct.
1: So. Then we get to the psychedelics. So I, I'm I'm curious about. On the one hand, you're helping regarding addiction, and I realize psychedelics aren't necessarily addictive. But tell me about the the interest in psychedelics.
2: Psychedelics definitely are not addictive, and they they have psychedelics and plant medicines mm-hmm. um, have definitely shaped my life in so many ways. Uh, when i was much much younger when i was 14 15 i started experimenting with psychedelics um psilocybin magic mushrooms as people know them or lsd acid um mdma all of these things um and i was m- not a very happy teenager as as most are you know going through like teenage angst and i definitely had a bout of some suicidal ideation. And if it weren't for MDMA and psychedelics, I don't think that uh, I would be where I am now. Hmm. So um, I would, I could actually say that they saved my life. I could go as far to say that. Uh, so that's where the interest comes from. And then as I learned more and um, co-founded psychedelictimes.com with my um former partner and then now Entheo Ventures um, a management consulting firm for psychedelic companies Um, I've just learned so much and connected with so much of the community and see such um, a profound uh, I know I word this just psychedelics can save the world if I can put it that way really really simply
1: (laughs) Well, I, I have heard, you know, in my ignorant, uh, layman way, not being involved in this, but have heard about uh, what you're saying as being um, helpful and in certain situations, certainly with people with um, suicidal thoughts or other stress uh, in their lives. And, you know, I also think about you know, my ignorance with this topic I, 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 re, I recall or think about the 1960s and the music from that era and how creative it was. Also, you know, ever since there's musicians and so on that, that were using psychedelics and were creating some of the most interesting music we've ever heard. So maybe talk a little bit about that psychological aspect of psychedelics. Like what, what really does that do? I'm someone who's not experienced it personally. Uh, forgive me for that, but if, if I wanted to, if I asked you how to describe an ex- psychedelic experience, what would it be like?
2: Gosh, there's a lot there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I take all day, huh?
2: <laughs> I could. Um, I can make it very simple in just saying that there is a major cognitive benefit. And that we can create new neural pathways and and dendritic connections and and uh, there is um, neural plasticity that I'm sure a lot of people know that term uh, and neurogenesis also you know where the the brain is able to transform and I guess grow we can put it that way with like the brain is like You know, making new connections. We're getting smarter. These are all ways of saying it Um, by using psychedelics. Like they're actually like brain food. I feel like that's a really simple, fun way to say it, too. (laughs) Um, And I'm just talking about like the actual cognitive benefits. But what you're experiencing is a deeper connection with yourself and with the world around you. And also, I believe that it it births and highlights a sense of altruism. Interesting. Uh, because you care more when you feel more connected.
1: Interesting. We're talking to Lana Shea. We'll be right back. <laughs>
0: Sunbury Press Books is the home of independent authors and thinkers. Radio Free Press is our imprint for politics and social issues. Check out authors such as Pat LaMarche, author of Still Left Out in America, The State of Homelessness in the United States, Jason Altmeyer's Dead Center, and A Year of Change and Consequences by Mark Single. Find out more by clicking the Books tab at sunburypress.com.
1: I'm back with Lana Shea, and we're talking about what it's like to use psychedelics and uh as i as you described in the last segment um this the experience i'm imagining like so we all see reality when we're sober in a certain way our eyes our ears our noses and so on even our psychic abilities if we have them are attuned a certain way The universe is uh, all around us and the universe is all energy. We've learned that from physics. Everything is energy and just different uh, degrees of uh, gravity and and cohesion, let's say. Uh, Some things more solid than others, but everything is energy. So I'm imagining that uh, if you can heighten your senses in some way, that maybe you would see even more things on the spectrum more things that are vibrating that maybe you didn't perceive under normal circumstances. Uh, Who knows, maybe even more of a psychic connection to things. Am am I sort of going somewhere or am I going down a rabbit hole I shouldn't go?
2: I love this rabbit hole. It's my favorite rabbit hole. And yes, you're right. You're right on point.
1: So so where does uh, like the Beatles, uh, Sergeant Peppers, uh, the sitar music, the... uh, some of the 60s stuff that came out that was really psychedelic where did all the that inspiration come from is there some some place that these people go that the music is very different they hear different notes and different sequences or is it it's just that you're open to it yeah, it's
2: a really great question uh oh. <laughs> I think they took a lot of LSD specifically
1: <laughs> Okay. <laughs> if,
2: we want, if we want to get into the actual substance specifically orange sunshine um but yeah I when you were saying this what popped in my head was my experience with um an amazonian brew tea whatever you want to call it ayahuasca um which I don't know if a lot of people have heard of but It's a a a vine and a leaf mixed together that create um, an experience of four to six hours experiencing visuals and sensations and uh, (laughs) it's interesting to describe it or think about describing it to someone who has no context it's a good practice i'm appreciating this um so when people are sitting in ceremony as they say you're sitting in a big circle and you're experiencing this dmt um, that's able to remain active in your body for a long period of time because it's paired with an maoi inhibitor is what it's called that allows the body to have a longer six hour experience with this um There are women who have done this like in indigenous tribes, the Shipibo tribe. Um, and when the women hear the songs, these women are able to weave a pattern, actually like on a piece of fabric. And there are these uh, fabrics called mesas. They're, they're fabrics that are woven with a pattern of song. They're actually able to see, the song visually and weave the song into a pattern on this fabric. That's what that just made me think of.
1: (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I've seen some things with, with like music and how it can make patterns in sand. Um, And uh, some of the designs that you see uh, in temples, Buddhist temples or Hindu temples actually are the patterns in the sand that are created with different notes, different sounds. I was really fascinated by that. Like, so that's, Sound, but seen in a different way, uh, presented in a different way. So, I want to give you a chance. We have a few minutes left, maybe five, six minutes, to talk about some of these other ventures that you have going on. Uh, what, what would people, uh, what might people be interested in that you're doing?
2: I'm doing so many things.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, uh, let's
1: just pick one. What, what's most popular?
2: Well, as I mentioned earlier and the adventures the uh, uh, psychedelic consulting company management consulting firm for psychedelic companies um we are very simply supporting companies that are coming into the psychedelic space and psychedelics so um as you may have heard <laughs> throughout this episode i'm very um focused on uh, educating people about the therapeutic use of psychedelics and plant medicines and a huge advocate also, obviously. Um, and uh, we are simply just optimizing their their companies so that they can get the word out there and that psychedelics can get into the hands of the people that need them. Um, just as we were speaking about it earlier, they are useful. They have been useful for people who have had depression or, you know, are to that point where they're feeling or experiencing some suicidal ideation like I was when I was younger, um, or anxiety. Um, there's one organization now called, um, Moms on Mushrooms. (laughs) Um, and they are putting out courses, for example, uh, for mothers to start microdosing, so that they can decrease their anxiety and um, just be better moms, actually.
1: <laughs> well, it, you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about, you know, it's not like this is new to humanity. These things have been known for a long time among the indigenous people. And like you described the Amazonians and, and what they were doing, but the, the mushrooms that you're talking about is were, were these predominantly in the uh, the southwest of North America, where where that was utilized by natives, or is it much bigger than that?
2: Mushrooms, yeah, for sure, definitely much bigger. Uh, there's a woman named Maria Sabina, and she was in Oaxaca in Mexico, and people would go to her when they had all kinds of um, physical ailments, or they were experiencing. Sort of mental disturbance and sit in ceremony with her and come out, you know, with a reset like a new person. Um, or maybe not, maybe they had to dive deeper into whatever that shadow was. But this has been around for a very, very long time.
1: Yeah. So this microdosing, is this something like a pharmaceutical industry is going to get into, or is this something that's more of a. Um independent of of that industry I mean, the industry tends to mess things up and then you get all kinds of regulations and some of the regulations are good but i can imagine it's when it's in its formative stage pre-regulation um there's some opportunities here is it is this sort of similar to what's going on with marijuana and that industry nationally or and where do you see it going
2: right And you are correct. Industry does mess things up, as you said. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm sure at some point the pharmaceutical industry will get their hands in it because it works. Um, But as for now, there are still uh, a lot of small companies and people with integrity getting microdoses into people's hands. So just a very, very small dose of psilocybin mixed with some something else like uh one common thing is lion's mane mushrooms a more um, medicinal mushroom like i would say think of like chinese medicine Mm -hmm. those sort of mushrooms they have a synergistic effect um, mixed with psilocybin and you just need a very small amount where it's sub perceptual um you're not tripping (laughs) right um and you're not experiencing anything that would um, affect you? It it wouldn't keep you from doing your normal daily activities. Put it that way,
1: Lana, I can't believe it, but we are just about out of time, and uh, there's still so much more to talk about. It's been great having you on. I've learned a lot. I think my perception of things has been altered for the better. So thank you for that. Uh, where can sure. where can uh, the listeners learn more about you?
2: Shay is the last name, and um. Lana Shea just about everywhere online and (laughs) you can find me everywhere.
1: I'm sure a lot of people will be looking after this. We'll have you back another time, Lana. Thanks for being on the Sunbury Press Book Show.
0: Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.